this is overturning everything, the mm. teachings of Jesus, I think in the minds of the yeah. people who were following in them and listening. Yep. And uh, it was absolutely transformational what Jesus was teaching. And they had to make sense of this. How This must be what God is like now. This yeah. must be um, what uh, the way he talks about God and the way he talks about um, God's love for all and the way he talks about sex workers and tax collectors and all that yeah. uh, getting into the kingdom before the religious folk. And right. like the, the, it turns everything on its head and they have to make sense of this. And, but, but still they're stuck with the language that they have at that time of uh, sacrifice and mm. atonement and um you know, things like that. And Jesus being the Lamb of God and, and so on. That's the language that made sense to them at that time. And so they used it. Part number two of the series, uh, Deconstructing Easter. This is the What If Project podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. This is episode number 90. And like I said, part number two of our Easter series. Yesterday, we talked to Dr. Alexander John Shia. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And uh, we're going to talk to the naked pastor, uh, David Hayward. You've seen his cartoons online, I'm sure. I share them all the time. Uh, David is a a good friend of mine, uh, someone who is a, a very big encouragement in my life, has been a cheerleader for me as well. Uh, so David, if you're listening to this right now, thank you. Thank you for you. Uh, thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your voice um, in the world. Uh, how did you like yesterday? Man, Alexander always has such crazy, cool things to share, right? And like I said, we are shifting gears today. Uh, David and I have a very, very open, very frank conversation uh, about Good Friday, the cross, the crucifixion, atonement, salvation, the Bible, all the things are going to come up in this conversation. Uh, so if you're not sitting down, you might want to sit down and um, get ready to uh, have some fun with us. Uh, I'm not going to talk about all the things, Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash whatifproject if you want to support the show, uh, link will be in the show notes, uh, the What If Project community um, is also a closed Facebook group, if you want to kind of go in there, have some conversations, that link also in the show notes, talking about that stuff every week, uh, sometimes feels like, uh, like it's like a commercial, I don't know, and I guess now that I'm recording... For this, for this series, we're doing five episodes in a row, and I, I literally uh, sometimes sit down and just record some of these intros, and so I just recorded, <laughs> as I'm talking to you right now, I just recorded the Alexander Shia uh, intro, and I just talked about all those different things, and I don't want to talk about them again. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear about those things, or just go click in the links in the show notes, and they will take you there. Special music, 
uh, today for the whole series from my friend Derek Webb, music off of his new album, Targets. If you don't know who Derek Webb is, you're missing out on life. Go Google him. Uh, check him out. He's got a great story, making cool music, and uh, listen to it, pass it around, do all the things. I hope that this series keeps you company because most of the churches in the country are closed for Easter weekend. Some pastors are are defying orders or recommendations or whatever and keeping their churches open. Um, hopefully, hopefully you are home this weekend, uh, maybe in the comfort of your own home, and you can drop by here the what if project and uh some of these episodes will will keep you and your mind and your heart company as you ponder the ongoings of passion week and uh the upcoming easter sunday so all of that said uh, i'm not going to keep you any longer we're just gonna roll into this episode with the naked pastor and like i said we're pushing up against some boundaries so you might want to get your torches ready and your pitchforks and head over to our houses and come and get us because uh, we're going to talk about some stuff. So let's do it. Let's roll the tape. This is episode number 90, uh, part number two of our series, Deconstructing Easter. This is my conversation with the one and the only Naked Pastor. Enjoy. everybody welcome back to the podcast uh today we're sitting down with repeat guest on the show uh david hayward aka naked pastor so welcome back my friend it's great to talk to you awesome thank you glad to be here what kind of crazy person has me on twice right i know who would have known <laughs> I know. you didn't I know. scare everybody away the first time so <laughs> this time <laughs> yeah right so uh david to paint a picture for you i'm sitting at my desk i've got my coffee mug that you designed um oh also- yeah one of your hoodies. My hoodie is a, a portrait of Jesus with all the different images awesome. of Jesus that you've drawn. And the mug is Jesus surfing on the, the gay wave. So super cool <laughs> stuff. And I'm curious, uh, what is your favorite thing that you sell on your store? Like, do you have a favorite image on a particular product that oh, you like? like if yeah. you were going to go on your store and buy something, what are you, you going to buy? Um, man, that's a really good question and a hard one to answer because uh, I just enjoy so much everything I do. Well, and one of, one of the things I, I do, uh, I'm an artist, as you know, well, of course, and I, <laughs> one of the things I like to do is hang art in my home. So what I, what I like to do is I try to get originals. <laughs> okay. Yep. So, um, you know, there are people that are out there who buy my original cartoons or my original images of Christ or my original Sophia's or things like that. So if I, if I was shopping for art, that's what I normally look for is a way to get an original piece. Um, I value, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm really proud to own some originals. So that's, uh, it's pretty, that's pretty cool to me to be able to acquire those. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, do you enjoy drawing more the the cartoons or like the Sophia pictures that you have? Like what's your, mm. what brings you well, most life? Well, 
the the cartoons are a daily thing my you know i i challenge myself to draw a cartoon every day um and i try to be relevant to what's happening at the time or what's hot uh and meaningful at that moment my sophias were more a reflection of my own journey mm. uh at that time uh, it lasted a couple of years uh where i was drawing these sophias and then when um when i had finally felt like i'd walked fully into my freedom the inspiration to draw sophia stopped so mm. uh you know at that time though lisa was working nights on the weekends as a nurse and um so i had friday and saturday nights all to myself and you know i'd get a bottle of wine or whatever and i'd just put on some really loud music and uh drink wine and draw my sophias and th that was a very intense personal uh, journey for me for those couple of years uh, where I drew those 63 images. So mm. um, that that was very intense. My cartoons are more um, let's let's have fun here and see what you know apple cart we can turn over. <laughs> see what hornet's nest we can kick. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Okay. Well, I will put the link to your store in the show notes and for our listeners. Uh, there's lots okay. of cool stuff on there. So. I head yeah. over there and uh, and pick something up. Now, too, can I just say what right yeah, please. now? Uh, yeah. I, I, ha I have David Hayward courses. It's my online school. And um, right now I'm offering, um, I'm reading the Sophia book, The Liberation of Sophia. I'm reading mm -hmm. it and showing the pictures and also commenting, giving a backstory on each drawing and what they mean, meant to me at the time. And it's free right now. So I, I'm, I'm just offering it for free during this coronavirus uh, outbreak. Perfect. Are, we're all shut in our homes and maybe getting bored and looking for something to do. So I've provided this for free. I'm reading a, a different one each day. It'll take us a couple of months to get through it. So if you want to, if you're interested in that, head over to davidhaywardcourses.com and sign up for the Sophia course and enroll for free. Awesome. Very cool. No. Thank you. Thank you. No. Uh, so, so this episode is going to drop on Good Friday during an Easter series that we're doing. And uh, that slot was originally going to go to N.T. Wright. I told you about that. Um, right. He was going to talk to me about his book, uh, The Day the Revolution Began, which is about the crucifixion and the atonement. Mm -hmm. uh, but about a month ago, uh, I had messaged you on Facebook about mm -hmm. 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning because I'm weird and usually think about deep things in the morning. And I sent you um, a question about the atonement that I knew you'd have a good answer for. So you obviously remember our, our conversation that we had. Right. Um, and so we got into this, this interesting dialogue and I thought to myself, like, this would be the kind of thing I want to talk about, uh, on Good Friday. And so N.T. Wright has been, uh, moved to a series in, in the fall and, uh, today oh. belongs to the, the naked pastor. So I'm excited, uh, to see where, uh, spirit is about to, is about to lead us in this, in this discussion. And, uh, I figured I would kind of frame the conversation by just reading you the message I sent you on Facebook, uh, okay. for our listeners that morning. And uh, then we'll just kind of see where, where it goes. Sound good? Well, why, yeah, sure. And then why don't you just read my response and then um, that'll give us a good That'd springboard into. Into our discussion? Yeah. Or not. It's I can you. do that. Yeah. Let me actually pull it up because I don't have the actual conversation in front no, of me. That's okay. Just read your question. Then. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm very humbled that I, I bumped uh, N.T. Wright. <laughs> we gave him the boot over to. <laughs> over to the fall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I'm going to pull it up because I have it here in front okay, of me. So, okay. Yeah, let me see. Let's see. All right, so here we go. Got okay. it. So my question, um, and I'll fill in some 
little bit of context for our listeners as well. But random question for you. Um, I struggle with the atonement. Uh, I used to be really Western evangelical in my thinking, like God was mad at my sin, so Jesus took my punishment so I can go to heaven when I die. Then I shifted to other theories like N.T. Wrightish ideas who showed me that there are other ways to think about the atonement. There are other ways to think about the work of Jesus on the cross. But now, though, I feel like all of those ways are kind of silly because why did Jesus's death need to accomplish anything more than simply showing us the love of God and what it looks like to be a genuine human being who loves and forgives at all costs? But at the same time, the voices of my theology professors taunt me in my mind as I struggle with what to do with verses from Paul and stuff about Jesus being a ransom, a sacrifice, propitiation for our sin, blood, all those things. So do you have any thoughts for me? And then your response, uh, you said to me, uh, first you said, whoa, talk about diving into deep and early on a Sunday morning. (laughs) 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 And then you said, I lean in the direction that the language used then in an attempt to describe their perception of reality is very uh, acculturated. Is that the word? Acculturated, yes. Uh, They use the language of their day from the paradigms of their day. Atonement is steeped in the ancient idea that blood had to be spilled to atone for the sins of the tribe, etc. And then you said that whole time and region was about blood, sacrifice, scapegoats, etc. Yeah, interesting. uh, um, Because having said that, um, you know, we think of uh, the whole scapegoat idea is 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 an ancient concept, but uh, it's still is relevant today, right? I mean, René Girard, um, who the, you know, the French philosopher, yep. historian, whatever, um, talked a lot about scapegoating and how it's still alive and well today. So uh, that's why I think the concept of atonement and so on still holds appeal. Mm. But yeah, my, I'm like you, my, my uh, theology has gone through major shifts and transformations. And I, I used to believe the, you know, typical evangelical belief of atonement and blood sacrifice and uh, propitiation and, and all that. And, and um, you know, I began in the Baptist and Pentecostal church, and then I switched to Presbyterian. I, I immersed myself in Reformed theology, and uh, you know, Karl Barth was and probably still is my favorite theologian. Um, uh, you know, I was immersed in Calvin and Bultmann and all these all these guys, and and uh, and then my my deconstruction. I, I think that was all a part of me, my deconstruction, but then my deconstruction really took a nosedive and uh, really took a, a major shift through my final years of deconstruction to the point now where um, I, I could say what I said to you in that response was that that language really typifies the the language and the ideas of that time and place. Mm. Something I've been thinking about since um, you and I had this conversation on Facebook and mm-hmm. I want to run this by you to kind of see what you think. But I think it's interesting that like in Paul's letters were written before the gospels. Mm-hmm. And when I read Paul's words, like I see a lot of language in his letters that was very prevalent in his world, like in his strict Jewish upbringing, 
and especially in the surrounding cultures and religions of his day that don't seem to me to be quite as loud and centered in the gospels. Like lots of talk about sacrifice, lots of talk about payment for sin, lots Mm -hmm. of talk about blood being shed. But when I read the gospels, which again, written after Paul's letters, I don't really see a lot of that talk at all. And so, and so maybe we could say like, you can tell me what you think here. Like maybe we could say that the gospel writers had almost evolved and they're thinking about Jesus's death. Mm. Like, may, like maybe Paul was reflecting on Jesus's death and resurrection using the only language that he really knew and within the only context he ever had while the gospel writers perhaps began to maybe strip away at least some of that language to think bigger, maybe differently, especially mm-hmm. since a lot of them were writing in the wake of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when literally their entire world change because Paul talks a lot about theology, but never once quotes Jesus, never once really tells a story about Jesus, but the gospel writers, they fill their stuff with all stories and all quotes. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is like when I read the gospels, I see a very different picture, I guess, of the Jesus story. And I feel like I get from Paul. So that's not to say that Paul's wrong and that the gospel writers are better. Not at all. It's just that I see like almost like an evolution of thought from Paul to the gospels. So like maybe the Bible is almost trying to tell us that perhaps we need to keep evolving in our thinking, just as the gospel writers evolve from Paul. Perhaps as time goes on, we're supposed to evolve even a little bit, a little bit more in our understanding of Jesus and his death and what it signifies for us, you know, all these years later in 2020, in the midst of all the things that we have going on in our world that would have been foreign to them in their world. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're ready to come to my house tonight with a pitchfork and a torch, but that's just kind of where, where I'm at in some of my thinking. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting um, that you would use the word evolve because some people would see the opposite, that you have sort of the bare bones of the Gospels um, that were inspired by Q or, or used Q, uh, the Gospel, you know, the Gospel or oral source of the Gospels. And, mm. and that Paul was an evolution from there to a sort of systematic theology of, of the meaning of, of Christ, mm. right? People, most people would see it the other way around rather than um, moving from Paul to, towards the gospels. My own, my own thought on that is that uh, you have um, different authors speaking to different churches in different regions. Yeah all through the, you know, the, the Middle East and um, were adapting the gospel narrative to their own people at yes. that time. Mm. And, and that Paul, uh, and, and which were largely um, uh, early Jewish Christian communities. Mm. Whereas Paul, his communities were, starting to integrate um, Gentile believers. And so he was, you know, with all, all the philosophers and all that, and we know from, or we we suspect from Luke uh, and from Acts that Paul was engaged with the philosophers of his day mm. and, and needed, you know, he adapted um, the gospel story to his um, audience and, and needs. That's the way I would interpret what yeah. that yeah. progression that's good. I think reminds me, uh, you've heard of Alexander Shia. Um, remind me. He, uh, he wrote a book called Heart and Mind. And oh, he yeah. talks about this um, idea of the quadrados and how 
Um, like you just said, the four gospels, you know, aren't biographies of Jesus as much as they are letters uh, mm-hmm. from certain people to certain churches who are going through different um, experiences given whatever time in history that it was. And so they were writing to encourage those people and they were emphasizing different things in the Jesus story and perhaps even took liberties at times to um, expand stories, you know, switch stories up a little bit, not because they were trying to deceive anybody, but because their, their point wasn't to write a biography. Their point was to write a letter to encourage them and remind them of the Jesus way to live their life in the midst of whatever situation was going on in their time. So I think to your point, I think it's important to realize that, you know, same thing goes for Paul, right? Because Paul was writing these letters to certain churches going through certain things. And Mm -hmm. he knew that they needed to hear certain things at certain times that maybe other groups didn't need to hear at the same volume or at the same intensity. And I think sometimes we get ourselves in the trouble. And I know I haven't, especially in my past where, you know, we, we take the Bible, we take different verses and different stories and we lift them out of their context in order to, you know, build these systematic theologies. And sometimes we might miss the bigger point, I guess, of what's going on. Well, I mean, Paul appears to have a complete disregard for the historical Jesus. True. He even even says we no longer think of him according to the flesh. Yeah. Which is, you know, we don't, we don't, we, we don't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about the, the theological significance of the Christ. Mm. And um, I think that was an honest thing to say. Uh, I, I, hap- I, I sort of lean towards the idea that um, there was a, a very influential man, um, and I don't even know if his name was literally Jesus or if that was imputed to this incredible teacher mm. um, because of all the Old Testament prophecies and everything, the hopes and the expectations of of uh, the people of God for the messianic person. And, and this man came along who was an incredible teacher. And, um, and, and, and so all of the hopes and expectations and the promises and the prophecies were uh, imputed to, to this man, in, including I suspect the name and, <laughs> maybe pitchforks and torches are coming to my house tonight. Right. They'll stop here first and then go up to you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that the, the gospels, I don't believe there was any kind of conspiracy like some people do that, you know, they were conspiring together to control the crowds and to create yeah. a new religion and to build a church that could control the people and take their money, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I don't believe that. I believe that the gospel writers and Paul were sincerely um, uh, communicating in the language of their day, um, using the symbols and the metaphors uh, of their day. Uh, you know, the, the research is out now that um, there were all kinds of heroes in that time period, in that region, who had virgin births mm. and walked on water and fed the multitudes and healed people and rose from the dead and were executed and et cetera, et cetera. This, this isn't unique to Jesus. Mm. And um, that the gospel writers were communicating in a way that was appropriate for 
their time and place. They, they weren't journalists. They weren't attempting to convey facts. They were con- attempting to convey truth. They'd seen something and were trying their best with the language and the tools they had to communicate this profound vision that they'd seen or had um, to, uh, to their people. Mm. And um, that includes ideas such as, uh, you know, the blood sacrifice and, and so on. Um, even, even the, you know, the, on the road to Emmaus and the two, um, the, the stories that Jesus joins them and walks along with them and, 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 and then disappears. And, and they say, wasn't our, weren't our hearts warmed as, you know, we, we talked with him and, and so on. And I think that kind of reflects what church is like for many people. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, the, the spirit of Christ seems real and seems to be present with us. And um, this must be the spirit of Jesus, this, this camaraderie that we feel, this union that we feel, this warmth that we feel, and the encouragement that we feel. And it, this must be the spirit of Jesus. And, um, you know, uh, and unsurprisingly, Jesus is quoted as saying, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them, you mm. know. Uh, and and so, you know, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think they were lying. Um, I think they were doing their best with the tools they had, the language that they had um, to convey something very, very powerful that I have tons of respect for I'm, and um, that I'm. I believe it does convey truth uh, with a capital T. And um, so when it's using language such as propitiation or sacrifice or blood or all these things, I, I, my, my idea is that these ideas are, these are the, lenses through which they're interpreting a life of a man who had such huge significance in their lives that um, this is how it, that this is how they make him the hero that he seemed to be not make him the hero. That's not the right, right language. They're trying to convey how great this person was and, and is still in our presence by his spirit. They're trying to convey the rightful power that ought to go behind this story, behind this man, using the language right. that they have available. Yeah. Right. Reminds me, I was reading a book by um, Carolyn Custis James, and it's called, I have it on my shelf, uh, Finding God in the Margins. It's a story about Ruth. And oh, she yeah. talks about um, how a lot of Ruth, there's a, a lot of patriarchy in Ruth. There's a lot of <laughs> things like that. And she talks about how a lot of times we get confused that, we have to remember that patriarchy is the the background, they're the backdrop against which uh, a lot of the Bible, the stories of the Bible take place. But sometimes right. we confuse that and we think the Bible is teaching us that patriarchy is the right way, when in reality it's just the backdrop against which the gospel takes place. And so I mm-hmm. think to your point about you know the gospel writers and about Paul using this language they have available to them, it's not necessarily that the language is what the story is trying to teach us as much as that language is the backdrop against which the story takes place. That's right. It's the only way they could communicate. It's the, and our language, language is everything. The language that we use 
emerges out of our view of the world. So, so for, let's take, for example, the violence of the Old Testament. I remember reading through the Bible. Uh, I, was re- I tried to read through a book a day. Yeah. back when I was a pastor and I, I had the time to do that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and, um, so I remember reading through Judges and I was like, oh, holy smokes. Right. <laughs> this is, the violence of Judges is just like, <laughs> when you read it in one sitting, it is, it is brutal. Yeah. It is just brutal. Um, like if you were to make a movie out of Judges, you'd have to have a warning on there, blood and gore. Right. right. <laughs> and, um, and, and I remember very clearly thinking, you know, this was written thousands of years ago when that's, that's the way people were back mm-hmm. then. I'm not, I'm not saying it was right or anything, but that's just the way people were then. Yeah. Where they, it was totally legit to, uh, in order to establish your boundaries, um, your borders, to completely annihilate a, a whole city with women and children and animals. I mean, it was yeah. completely within their mind worldview mm. to that, that, that was a legitimate way. And blood was just, it was just how things were done. I'm, I'm not excusing it. I, I think it's horrible, but, and, and, and so of course their God, the God that they were trying to describe at that time would endorse that. I mean, I, yeah, I don't mean endorse it, but I mean, they're, the way we view our world and the way, language we use is intricately tied together. They're, you can't separate them. So right. when they're trying to describe, you know, the annihilation of a city um, and that God commanded it or blesses it, that of course, because that's the way they thought at that time. And I'm sure a thousand years from now, if this earth is still, you know, around and people upon it, that they're going to look back at our time and think, and I can't believe these people thought God was such a God. Right. Um, the, the way they think about, you know, God excluding gay people or mm. that he would inflict, you know, a, a virus upon the earth because he was angry and killed millions of people because he was upset, you know, like what kind of people think that way? Well, apparently yeah. there are people that think that way. Mm. Um, and so our, our language and our, and our worldview is intricately tied and and so you know we have that in the old testament with the violence and the blood and then and we also have it um not all just just in places we see developments like in deuteronomy and things like that um where there's a lot more love and so on and and places in the psalms and um lamentations and 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 so on but um in and through the gospels and so on you still see um you start to see a different kind of god uh emerging and, mm. and, and so much so that some people think that the old testament god and the new testament god are two different things right 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 like take yeah. marcion for example he literally said that and um you know uh they showed up at his door with torches and pitchforks <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and so the jewish god and the yep. Christian god are two different gods and mm. jesus represents our you know all this sort of anti-semitism that's laced through a lot of this language yeah. Um, and, and, um, but, but we, I was just, Lisa and I were laughing just the other day, my wife and I was like, you know, things didn't change much because Ananias and Sapphira, because they didn't give as much offering as they should have got struck <laughs> by lightning right there in the new Testament. So right. things haven't changed that much. That's right. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think, uh, um, I had a professor in school who, who said that 
you know, the Old Testament writers, when they're writing about all these things, like you said, I mean, the, even the surrounding cultures of their day all believe that the gods were warlords in a sense who are on their side and yes. want victory for them and overcome lands and destroy people. And so, you know, that's the, the culture in which they live. So they interpreted their understanding of Yahweh in that way. But we even see a progression throughout the Old Testament of things changing. And this professor said that when you get to Jesus, it's kind of like the exclamation point. Like Jesus is almost saying like, you know, you've understood God this way, this way, and this way up to this point. Like, I'm here to show you this is what God is really like. And I think mm-hmm. that that's an important thing to remember as well when reading the Gospels mm-hmm. and getting into the Easter story. So, so I think with um, the teachings of Jesus, um, we start to see um, people who are amazed by his teaching and need to make sense of this. This is overturning everything. The mm. teachings of Jesus, I think, in the minds of the people yeah. who were following in him and listening. Yep. And uh, it was absolutely transformational what Jesus was teaching. And they had to make sense of this. How This must be what God is like now. This yeah. must be um, what uh, the way he talks about God and the way he talks about um, God's love for all and the way he talks about sex workers and tax collectors and all that yeah getting into the kingdom before the religious folk and like that it turns everything on its head and they have to make sense of this and but but still they're stuck with the language that they have at that time of uh sacrifice and Mm. atonement and um you know things like that and jesus being the lamb of god and and so on that's the language that made sense to them at that time and so they used it to describe you know how this person um was the son of man, the man of man, the ultimate man, mm. but also how he was um, God and at the same time. And where, and so we, we get into Paul where man and God, man meaning humanity, sorry, humanity and God meet in this one person and we're one. Yeah. Uh, there's this unity uh, bet- between humanity and, and God. And uh, then you have to start unpacking that, right? And, yeah. and so this is where they get stuck in, not stuck, but uh, they, they have no choice but to use the language of their day to try to unpack the meaning of this profound revelation. Everybody's got new language, right? I mean, as history goes on, as mm-hmm. cultures evolve and change, new language becomes available, new understandings, new ways to think. And I think it's only natural for us to almost graft those things in to this ancient story. Yeah. So like when, when I'm reading the Bible now and yeah, I, I do still read the Bible. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, right? <laughs> there, there was a time there when I left the church and ministry where I didn't pick up a Bible for a long time. But, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I look at it and read stuff now because I'm trying to understand what they're getting at um, through what they're saying. Hmm. So that when let's say Colossians um, who some say Paul wrote and others say Paul didn't, but uh, that say God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. Yeah. Let's say. So uh, that is looking at the life of Jesus and, and, and he actually practiced this um, in his day-to-day life where he hung out with anybody, mm. people who were considered untouchables, let's say, and were rejects of society and, um, were considered sinners and unclean, uh, 
you know, beginning with shepherds and sex workers and tax collectors and beggars and women and um, adulterers and, and so on. And Jesus hung out with these people hmm. and the, the records show, right? <laughs> and, and so this is how we, we, we um, come up with language. So now in one sentence, we have sort of story, Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners. And then we have a Pauline theology that says God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. That's a theological interpretation of events. Yeah. With using theologically um, weighted language, right? Mm. But it's saying the same thing. One's the picture of it and the other's the description. Yeah. And so I think that's why we have uh, the Gospels, which are stories. And um, although John, you know, delves into theological speech, um, and then you've got you've got Paul, who's systematizing it and and using theological language to describe the same thing. Man, that is so good. I like that. Let's segue for a minute. Um, okay. Let's talk about the what behind Jesus's death. And I want to toss this question out to you: like, what what is the point? You know, you've you've evolved, you've grown, you've changed. Um, where? are you today when it comes to like the topic of good Friday, you've stood in pulpits before you've preached sermons. Um, if the naked pastor were to step into a pulpit on good Friday, uh, what is something that you would say to the people who are there? Hello, anybody home? Anybody? <laughs> no, there wouldn't be anybody there. No, I'm right, okay. right. Yeah. These days, <laughs> Why is there anybody here, here? if you were to fire up zoom and get some people on with you, <laughs> what would you say? So, uh, in keeping with what I said before about this man who was uh, an amazing teacher um, who was radical in his love, I think, and in his message, mm. got himself killed. I, I do think that is true. Yeah. Um, I suspect that is true. And that the disciples, everybody, of course, um, freaked out, were hiding for their lives. And um, that them being together and, and, and still feeling the same, you know, um, uh, feeding on his teachings, um, still enjoying the same fellowship that they enjoyed before mm. and um, loving one another and caring for one another uh, is the way the earliest Christian communities began. Mm. Um, so was Jesus physically raised from the dead? Well, that, that, that's so much to unpack because mm. like I've already said, it was, the, was the, the person's name, even Jesus and, uh, and the, the evidence that we seem to have that the spirit of Christ lives on was in the dynamic, vital, um, loving, uh, um, collective of the earliest Christian community. Mm. I think that's the greatest evidence that Jesus spirit is with the, the earliest church. You know, um, I don't you know when I say, I don't believe in the physical resurrection. What I mean by that is, you know, physical, spiritual and all that. The, the fact that um, the spirit of Jesus, I'm using um, a small s spirit, Mm -hmm. lives on the teachings of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the inclusion of Jesus, the radical lifestyle of Jesus, the um, 
um, speaking truth the power of Jesus continues to live on in the earliest church and even to this day here and there <laughs> yeah so um, that's what I think is the the power of of the gospel and um, that's you know that radical self-sacrifice of of this person is reflected in a community that uh, reflects the same dynamic that Jesus lived while on the earth. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I would say I'm, kind of, I'm probably in a similar, a similar vein as you are. Um, like for me, I'm, I'm at this place where I see the, the cross and Easter like so much differently than I used to. Like I used to see it, you know, like you said earlier, it's God's and like God's way to solve the problem of sin. You know, like I'm sinful, God's really ticked off. And so Jesus took my punishment to atone for my sin and make me right with God. But you know, now I see it like a lot differently. I think, you know, if the cross solved any kind of problem at all, in my opinion, it was the problem of death, not so much sin. And I think, you know, Jesus being nailed to the cross, not because of my sin, but because like you said, people hated him and what he stood for in the world and in a world that stood for the opposite things that he stood for. And so when he died, you know, he shouted forgiveness with his last breath, right? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, mm-hmm. The third day he, he rose again. The Bible says not to triumphantly go to heaven and show up all the people that put him on the cross, but to to show us, I think, how to overcome the biggest problem in the world, death, to show us that new life and victory and, and over this great enemy comes not by living a life that looks out for ourselves, our own best interests, but living the same kind of life that he lived, a life of love and grace, and mercy, forgiveness, humility, and a life that reflects those things right up to the very, to the very end. And, you know, whether, whether that's a, a portrayal of history, like is this a historical event that happened exactly like this? Or like we uh-huh. said earlier, the gospel uh-huh. writers are writing letters. They're writing letters to people and they're trying to encourage them um, in their specific circumstance. And so I think that we have to take that into account when we read the stories and understand that, you know, whether it's an accurate, this is meant to be historical document, that this is the way it happened or not, that wasn't really their point. The point was, you know, what is the deeper truth that we can get from this? And I think that, like you said, you know, it's this life of love and life of grace and living this life of inclusion. That's the kind of life that brings new life. And when I read the Gospels today and I read the Easter story, that's what I see, that new life comes through living the life that Christ lived. So, so there, there, um, there are, are liberal um, New Testament scholars, let's say. So Luke, it, it's recorded in Luke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And um, e- even if liberal scholars might say that that wasn't actually said, mm. and there are, there are scholars that say that this is not a, a you know, historic saying of Jesus, yeah. um, the fact that the Christian community would think or, or accept that he did is yeah. profoundly important. Yeah. To, to think that, uh, like a, a, the earliest Christian community would believe that they should forgive their executors yeah. is a profound, I mean, you know, that's, that's profound. Even mm-hmm. if, if Jesus didn't actually say it, um, yeah. I'll tell you one, one, I'll tell you what really provoked the very beginning of my deconstruction was back in the seminary. I, uh, maybe I told you this story already. 
But um, I, for some reason, I, I read a book uh, written by uh, a New Testament professor at York University in Toronto. Mm. Um, he wrote a book called The Silence of Jesus. Uh, his name is Bre- Breach, I think, B-R-E-E-C-H. And um, I read that book. I don't know why, because it was an evangelical seminary, and this certainly wasn't an evangelical book. Uh, it wasn't on the reading list. But I, I was reading this book, and he basically came up with there was probably seven sayings of Jesus in the Gospels that Jesus actually said. Mm. <laughs> and, I, you know, up to that point, I was like a complete inerrantist, uh, inspiration of Scripture, inerrant, infallible. And when I read that, when I was finished reading this book, that's when my deconstruction actually started. Mm. And that was the beginning of the end for me. It took decades for it to finally, you know, work its way through. But that was the very beginning of my, my deconstruction. And, and so you have, you have these scholars, New Testament scholars, and even early Christian communities. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, you, you read the history books about the earliest Christian communities that were in the Syrian desert, that were in Ethiopia, that were in, um, you know, in India, in you know it, further east than that up into uh what's now europe like mm. they the, the the vast diversity of beliefs is mind-boggling yeah but yeah. because um there were some theologians and early church fathers that felt there needed to be complete uh you know um agreement on every word, you know, you get the councils and the creeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, um, you know, eventually some were called, some, some Christian communities were called heretical and no longer Christian mm-hmm. and others were, you know, blessed and, and so on. So I think that diversity um, and the silencing of this diversity in the very, you know, first few centuries is, is something that I think we need to look at again. Yeah, I think there. Uh, one of the things I, I love about Alexander Shia, um, who I mentioned before, wrote Heart and Mind, is he talks about how in the very first century of Christianity, like the mm-hmm. the ideas swirling around about Jesus, the cross, the crucifixion, baptism, right. all these things were so diverse. And he says he, he has a degree in anthropology. So he's like studied cultures and stuff like that. And he said that it would almost be like to put it in like everyday terms. You know, if you showed up at, you know, a meeting with a whole bunch of people for like a, you know, a church, whatever, you know, people would be like, so what are your thoughts on the baptism? You know, and then you'd share your thoughts and then they would share their thoughts and there would be no arguing. It wasn't like it was a, well, you're wrong. I'm right. You know, as everybody's thoughts were just kind of welcome. And he said, you know, all of that was kind of, lost in a sense when we got to the point where we made creeds and like you said certain um, ideas were considered heretical and they were pushed away and there were just these certain ones that were accepted but he said it wasn't like that in the very early church we're almost at a time now where there are certain branches maybe of the church that are kind of going back to that and welcoming different ideas welcoming more of a diversity um, because i think i said it to you on our maybe on our previous episode but we might not always see eye to eye on different doctrines, so to speak, but we can move forward arm in arm um, and do the work of Christ in the world. And I think that's, right. I think that's the key. Yeah. 
yeah, the diversity of the earliest church was just unbelievable. I mean, there's even a sect that's still alive today that believes John the Baptist was actually the Messiah and yeah. that Jesus was his disciple. And, 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 you know, a lot of people don't know about that. Um, yeah. It's, the diversity is incredible. Yeah. I love that. So last question for you. Um, okay. What advice do you have for the person who maybe they're listening? Um, like, like you and I described earlier, like that initial step into deconstruction where things are swirling around in your head. Um, but especially thinking about like Good Friday, Easter, all the things that we, you know, I know for myself grew up, you know, this was cemented. This is the way to understand it. This is the way to think about it. But now those things are beginning to unravel for them. Um, and now we're in the midst of this coronavirus stuff. So people are spending a lot of time at home alone with their thoughts in some instances. So like, what, what do you suggest for that person? Is there, is there a book you might point them to? Is there maybe some sort of practice or exercise you might suggest for them as they kind of go into this Easter weekend? Like speak to that person who is, is struggling with what to do with this Easter season as they're deconstructing things. Well, I always, I always recommend, I mean, books have been important to me, so maybe I'm projecting, but um, dive in the deep end when you're reading books. Uh, you know, I read over your head. And, mm. you know, it's too often when growing up in the church, we're handed pamphlets and click, chick publications or whatever, you know, Bible tracts or whatever to read and, and everything's simplified and boiled down and, you know, dumbed down for us. Mm. But I suggest, you know, picking up some, um, liberal theologian books and uh, philosophy books or quantum physics books. I mean, one of the most profound books I've read in the past few years, and it's just a delightful little book um, um, called um, The uh, Seven Brief Lessons in Physics mm. uh, by Corelli and an Italian uh, quantum physicist. And it's just, it's just a beautiful, profound, uh, deep, eye-opening. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a theology book by any means. He claims to be an atheist, but I read this book and I'm like, I'm just moved to tears by the profundity of what we're living in and the world we're living in mm. that is bigger than we can possibly fathom and more mysterious. And to me, that just opens all kinds of doors and lets all kind of fresh air in. And, um, you know, for me that, that, um, helps eliminate fear, um, of, you know, losing our beliefs and so on when we, um, relax and, and, and begin to understand that we live in a very mysterious universe, very profoundly beautiful, complex, and, uh, that, you know, when we start, you know, when we read books about these kinds of things and our, our minds are opened, it just, it just makes the world a better place and, and yeah. less rigid. Yeah, that's what you. I would recommend. You know, you know, you can't go to the bookstore right now, maybe, but you can get, you know, download a Kindle version or, a, right. you know, whatever. Or order yeah. from Amazon. You might get here eventually with, with the toilet paper. Or order from Amazon. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I think too, like as, as, I move further into this season. I get more comfortable with ambiguity in my, my questions. You know, I think for the, for a while I needed answers. Like I would have a question and I would just read everything I possibly could and then become more confused than I already was. 
Yes. And I think as I've gone on, um, I've become more comfortable with just saying, I don't really know, but this is, I no longer think in this particular way. I don't really know what I think right now, but my thoughts are developing and progressing. And I think what you said about reading over your head is key too. Like um, I read uh, Christmas time, a book by John Dominic Crossan about the birth of Christ and uh, the birth of Jesus. Right. And he was always somebody, he's going to be on actually for our Easter episode. Oh, and, wow. Um, cool. Yeah. And uh, he's actually somebody who I was always told is like, you know, like a dangerous kind of thinker. And I remember I read this book. I read the first chapter and I, I put it away for like almost a month. Cause I'm like, I can't read this. Like it's just, it's way, it's way too much for me to take. But then I went back to it and I was like, huh. Now, you know, I'm reading it a little bit differently and then I was able to take some things from it. So I think to your point, reading over your head with something you might not normally read is a good way to stretch your mind and make some room in there for your thoughts to evolve and to grow. I have many things going on. One of the things I do is I counsel people or spiritual direction or coaching, whatever. Um, and I was just telling somebody just yesterday who's really struggling with their deconstruction and they're terrified. I'm like, look, they're, and they're, what do I believe? What do I believe? And I'm like, look, you're, it, you're not going to find peace in an answer. That's mm -hmm. not the answer. It, it's, it's being able to live with the question. It's being able to yes. live in the mystery that you don't yeah. know. That is where your peace is going to come. It's not going to come from finding the right answer because then you'll end up, you're just jumping from one frying pan into another and eventually yeah. that will um, start cooking you and you'll have to go through this all over again. If you, can yeah. short, if you can bypass all that and just get to a place where you're at peace, not knowing. And, and, and it's, not, it's not, you know you know, saluting to ignorance or throwing in the towel and giving up yeah. understanding. It's, it's a, it's a deep wisdom that uh, it, it's kind of like the, the deep current of a river and all the thoughts and everything sort of are the ripples on the surface. And um, that's a deep kind of peace that can't be replaced by anything else. So don't, it's not the answer you're looking for. It's the peace you're looking for in the midst of the, the mystery. I love it, David. Every time I talk to you, I feel like I am uh, stretched and filled up. So thank well, you. Man. Thank you. You're this welcome. Good. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to sit with me and uh, get a little bit heretical. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but let's, we, can let's... The, we can do this in the peace and quiet of our own homes. So. That's right. That's right. So we'll, uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right, man. Thank you, David. And a happy Easter to you, my friend. And, and to you too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.